Um, I guess I'll fly. Try see if I can fly blind without my um, without my script mm. because I mean it's going to be different anyway. This can be a casual episode, like a like every episode, episode of a podcast, because our our normal episodes are so formal. Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where every... Nope, I need my script. (laughs) Nope, that's the start. That's the start. We're keeping it in. Fine. Uh, It's a podcast where we normally, each week, uh, talk about a different year in cinema history, starting from the very beginning. You go on that journey with us through film history. But right now, we thought that uh, it might be a nice thing at the end of every decade to do a little recap do a little uh summing up and see how we feel about what has transpired Um, an in summation episode as it were would that it were Um, so simple i'm one of your hosts chris ellie i'm a film projectionist who is unemployed but you know that in name (laughs) (laughs) joining me as always is i am glenn covell i am a filmmaker and film editor i guess they're kind of one is part of the other. I could just say filmmaker. I don't know why I'm tacking on editor on there. Ooh, we're getting loose with this one already. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's a you know, it's it's the bonus episode. It's what it's you It's the expect. bonus episode. Yeah. This is uh, exclusive to the Patreon. If you don't if you're not subscribed <laughs> to our Patreon, close the window now cuz you're not allowed to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway, um this is, uh, what, I guess this is our 16th episode, something like that. Um, we uh, have started in 1895, and um, and we are now moving into the 1910s when feature films are really getting started, uh, What is what we expect to be happening. Um, but yeah, um, figured we'd just think think and talk about a little about what we've seen so far what we've learned on this journey yeah um i feel like i have learned many things give me a thing you've learned um one thing that i guess has stood out in the 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 films of 1900 to 1909 is how how early a lot of things showed up in film yeah that i didn't necessarily expect um, I didn't expect to see any color or sound films from this time period. Particularly those, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I had never seen those before. I had maybe heard of, like, the early color experiments. Mm-hmm. But I'd certainly never watched them. Had um, you seen, like, like one of those color serpentine dances before? I feel like those kind so. of float around a bit, yeah. you know? Um, but those are, are hand-colored. Yeah. Um, I yeah, I'd certainly seen like the the hand colored films a little bit, um, but even those are surprising with how like elaborate they get. Um, yeah, we talk about like the different um, different coloring systems. Some some of them are slavishly done by hand on every frame, uh, uh, as were originally done on um, Magic Lantern slides, but. Yeah, it's a, it's this humongous process that some films just thought it was worth doing uh, to be able to charge a little more for the movie itself. And mm. then there were others that used stencils and 
there were some experimentations with color wheels toward the end of the decade, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I I think the only other, like the other my biggest takeaway is like how slept on this period of history kind of is. Like other than <laughs> literally two films from this decade, um, pretty much all the rest are kind of consigned to like curiosities or just sort of like and and the rest like um and there's a lot of cool interesting things happening in them and it's it's uh it's i guess it's a little bit of a shame that they that they kind of get skipped over in most history books or or like general histories of of film yeah i mean they're especially um with the creativity and the visuals and what they're doing, uh, watching these new special effects and some of them kind of gaining in polish as, as the years go on, um, there's there's a lot of just fun, whimsical stuff that I think really stands the test of time. Um, really just enjoyable to look at and, and yeah. pleasing to look at. Um, I mean, particularly a lot of these uh, Ferry movies. Ah, um, uh, oui. Uh, made by Méliès and Pathé, which I found out today. We've been calling Pathé, but it's pronounced Pathé. Right, yeah. Oops. <laughs> um, we've definitely been mis- mispronouncing that and Gaumont uh, a bunch. Gaumont. But c'est la vie. We should, uh, like, w- doing this podcast has made me really wish that I spoke a little French, you know? Or... You feel like you're missing out a little bit on early cinema history, especially if you're trying to do a bit of primary research, mm. uh, if you can't read French. Um, yeah. Uh, I would love to like dig through the uh, Star Films catalog and the Lumiere catalog, mm. um, just talking, like like reading over their notes, their original notes on everything. Oh, uh, yeah. A lot of fun. That would be super interesting, I'm sure. Um, I definitely had a, a thought yesterday watching our, like, historical or contemporary movies about the time period uh i was like oh, i want to go to france mm-hmm. and yeah I was like, well that's not gonna happen anytime soon but i've got my fingers crossed i'm, I'm like hoping for I, I have tickets um to to go to the uk and france in uh june and oh. i'm hoping that i'm hoping that it might work out by then hopefully <laughs> i mean i i hope so too i mean um I don't know how confident or optimistic I am about it, but very hopeful. If you were to visit France uh, on on a on a journey uh, uh, highlighting some of this film stuff, where would you go? I mean, I would have to go to Paris, just because. Um, but I would probably also try to. I I think, given the, you know, time and money, if I was able to like actually visit other places um i would definitely want to try to visit like the lumiere factory um or if it's still around yeah or yeah like i mean some of the some of the places where like elise gee shot her her chase movies i think would be would be pretty fun to visit um certainly the the film museums in france look super cool yeah, that would be there's a, a, a there's huge a one. film museum in the Netherlands. There's one in Italy, and there's one in France that I've just like 
been seeing so much from in doing research here mm. and just have my have uh have my eye on them one of them's called the eye film museum so oops but Ooh. yeah <laughs> the one that i have had just in my head ever since the beginning is i want to go to la ciotat station like the the, the train station that the train arrived at, yeah. you know? Yeah, that set would up, be cool. Set up my phone camera right there. I love doing, like, kind of, um, when I'm traveling, doing sort of dumb things, dumb journeys for, <laughs> like, just kind of just to do them, just yeah. metaphorical reasons. Mm -hmm. It's the same reason why I, I drove eight hours to catch a Mewtwo. Um, uh, yeah. Not even in the heyday of Pokemon Go, but <laughs> a couple years later. <laughs> Hey, it's still going. It's still a thing. You gotta do it for the bit, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I I like doing stuff like that. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing on this podcast in a, a sort of a lot of bits, a lot of bits, and also very involved, um. I guess metaphorical journeying through, uh, through history. Um, for the sake of just yeah, neat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I, I appreciate that we're doing this just for the sake of itself, because um, having the education come out of this has been so nice. Even this ancillary education through researching the news segments, mm -hmm. um, I feel like yeah. I've learned so much uh, about yeah, turn-of-the-century history. And, it, you know, part of the fun of this is that we get to get really nitty-gritty, even though this mm -hmm. is uh, such a um, broad podcast over the scope of like what it is supposed to be yeah. if it's going to go all the way up to now we learned so much about the dreyfus affair yeah just absolutely because there was an important movie made about it several I, actually i have um i have so many youtube or not youtube uh, wikipedia tabs open uh, uh from doing historical research that i'm like oh i want to read more about that but yeah also history's yeah. boring <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a history podcast, but it's also, come on, movies. Yeah. Movies. Yeah. Movies are But fun. it's also interesting, yes. History is boring. <sighs> history um, is boring, stories are fun. There we go. Um, and something that we saw in this decade uh, was, uh, you know, people were telling stories in the beginning of the decade in the 1890s, but it was very, very, very simplistic stuff. Uh, I mean, it's the kind of thing that you would struggle to call a story, and maybe it's mm. just more of a basic scenario, right? Yeah. But by the end of the decade, as people are getting more confident with editing and shot composition and acting, um, we're starting to see stuff that is a lot more complex and deals with more you know deep emotions uh which you know it's a stage being set for like actual cinema i yeah. think I, I think there's a lot of fun with the trick films but they're not telling stories so much yeah. yeah it's one of the really fun things about watching movies from this early is seeing how quickly they evolve and change and develop yeah i mean i i was looking back at some of the movies from 1900 and they're like so wildly different from the movies from 1909 like there's such a, a huge a huge gap in just like i mean the uh, from a technical level for sure but also yeah just with like the ambition of them and like the types of stories they're trying to tell yeah yeah a lot more maturity 
Um, mm-hmm. I'll bring in this segment from later just a little bit, uh, just to uh, just because it's relevant. Is um, I don't know if you if you ended up watching the movie uh, The Extraordinary Voyage, which is a documentary about um, about uh, a trip to the moon. Um, it's it's partially about the restoration and has interviews with a few uh, contemporary French directors, kind of talking about Méliès. Mm. One of the people from the movie, uh, from the Extraordinary Voyage, talked about how Méliès was a showman and a jokester, but cinema was entering a serious phase, um, which I think we saw. You know, we we put a lot of praise on Melies and I think he deserves a lot of praise, but there was, there's a lot of innovating that everyone started doing that. He just kind of refused to and stayed in his lane in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was what he was good at and it's what he liked doing, but the audiences were not really, uh, feeling kind of silly trick films and dancing imps anymore. Which is a little sad. Yeah, um, they want tragedy. <laughs> yeah, seriously. With with just the amount of the, the the amount of tragedy, like what a glutton for tragedy D.W. Griffith is in just these first two years. Yeah. Like he <laughs> dour a dour dour yeah. man. But it, I mean, before him, it was kind of going that direction anyway. I mean, Capilani was doing a lot of uh, tragic melodramas. Yeah a couple of years leading up to that. I mean, Ferdinand Zeka kind of built his whole career out of that. Like all of his biggest movies are kind of these like very, very sad melodramas. That's true. Yeah. The, 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 um, was it the alcohol one, the, uh, yeah, the, the one based um, on the Emil Zola book, mm-hmm. um, you know, ends with, the guy being driven crazy by his alcohol addiction and then of course history of a crime ends with a big old guillotine mm. i was thinking about a little bit about what genres were popular over the course of the decade mm. and in the beginning we saw the the fall of the actuality right mm-hmm. i think that was the first step of movies moving from their like super nascent phase into uh into something a little more legitimate and storytelling focused Um, well yeah moving from a very literal sense of like moving pictures yeah to something that was much much more elaborate and much more complex and much more focused on creating a narrative yeah and actually i i probably should have talked about this earlier but i want to just sum up a little bit of the things uh that we've seen out of movies and like the the raw numbers a little bit uh Mm. we have seen movies that have been original stories adapted from books comic strips poems news current news popular songs at the time fairy tales and movies that have been adapted from other movies not just remakes but ripoffs a lot of those (laughs) a lot of those and uh, Glenn, I don't know if you I don't know if you looked at this uh, when I sent you the spreadsheet, but if you were to guess how many movies we talked about over the course of the podcast, how many how many do you think it would be? A few hundred. So so 
just in the in this decade that we're talking about, we've talked about 185 movies, oh, 303 man. total. <sighs> yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It, it kind of makes sense because most of them are very short, and so we have. I do definitely feel like we have watched a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot. I mean, we've we've seen the a good chunk of the ones that are actually available to watch from mm-hmm. this era. Yeah, I feel I feel good about that. I feel like it's um Yeah, right. I feel like it's it's an accomplishment, I guess. Um I feel I feel sort of like as a filmmaker, I definitely feel like it's adding to my clout and my bona fides. Mm-hmm. Sort of. I was sort of like I've watched all the old ones. Um <laughs> could put it on your business card. Say have seen every movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so like, you know, if I ever one day, fingers crossed, get into a conversation with like, you know, Scorsese or Coppola or somebody, I can be like, so, you know, those D. Chamon films are really something, huh? Um, speaking of that, actually, have, have you, what, what are some things that you feel like as a filmmaker that you've learned from, from watching movies so far and taken from them Mm. i don't know if it's like a specific thing that i've learned but it is always kind of a little bit inspiring to watch um how silent films tell stories using no dialogue um yeah and like uh especially i think with some of the more recent ones that we've watched with cross-cutting how much that just how much heavy lifting editing can can do, um, which is always something that I've known pretty much. But it's it's cool to see that develop of like going from like a single scene being just one shot and then another scene just being another shot to starting to sort of intermingle the two and having scenes flow together and and yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of any like specific things that I feel like I really feel like I've I've learned and it's there aren't really that many i mean there's some Mm -hmm. like cool techniques or cool shots that i'm like i could steal that right um i mean it is all pretty simple stuff i guess that we're watching yeah it it is a lot of it does feel in a way like the they were learning in real time over the course of years what like film students learn the first week week. (laughs) yeah pretty much of just like here is what you know uh like how editing works and like how framing works and um like the very kind of fundamentals but it is it's really cool to see that stuff getting figured out um yeah yeah to be honest like you know you're talking about how impressive it is how quickly they're figuring out a a lot of this stuff but since we are stretching it out a lot it it is also a little frustrating (laughs) i i just wish that they were just they would just figure it out instantly, but yeah. I guess that's not reasonable. <laughs> Although it, and it's also interesting to see when it's sort of like when there's almost resistance or like attempts to kind of pull it in other directions that didn't really, yeah, kind of ended in dead ends. Like I think the yeah. whole kind of fairy genre led to so much, but in 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 and of itself ended up seeing seeming like kind of turned into a dead end because it was so, um. I guess tied to like theatricality, like 
theatricality right. in the literal sense of recreating theater and sort of stuff being uh, shot as if it is a stage um, to the point where like I, I genuinely think that one of the reasons why Melies might have been resistant to like doing close-ups is because that means the person's head would have been really big in the frame, like on the screen. And he would have been like, then the audience is going to think that the head is giant. Like that's the only <laughs> time he ever does it in any of his when movies. When a head is giant. Yeah. When a, you know, a head gets blown up like a balloon or like a giant shows up and it's like, they're bigger in the frame. Right. It's more of like a literal interpretation of the space behind a frame rather than being able to, uh, yeah. Man- manipulate the size of things. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, realizing that it's an artificial window into another world and you can use that window to look at whatever you want, yeah. you know? Um, and yeah, de- trying to think of like how much, um, I think it's also interesting. We're watching all these kind of dour melodramas that are very, um, trying to tell very like real, real stories, you know, they're like shot on location and, um, you know, based on either like contemporary novels or or true stories and things, and then there's all these other movies where it's like this movie is about like mermaids dancing underwater, and it's like that's yeah. the whole thing. It's it's strange. Like, I mean, you can see it especially in the difference between the French and the Americans what mm-hmm. they're trying to do typically. Um, um, and then also like it it is very cool to see the people who are like bridging that gap also a little bit hmm. um and yeah there's another big i think big takeaway is like there are so few american movies that i thought were good or enjoyable from this decade yeah like and people think of america as like the, the place where cinema was born you know hell but no france it's, it was france <laughs> A hundred percent. Like, yeah, that is one thing that I am like firm. That is like a very firm belief I have now is like, no, no film is a French or started as a French thing. I wouldn't say it's purely a French thing now, but certainly the first 15 years of filmmaking was entirely being pushed by the French. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Americans, we, we have, uh, we have not been too fond of them this entire show. Uh, <laughs> I look forward it's... to the day that we can like fondly talk about American movies. <laughs> right. Maybe after D.W. Griffith uh, is gone. <laughs> well, I, I think, well, we, we got Chaplin coming up pretty soon. Yeah, that's so. true. I'm excited to watch some Chaplin. Oh, yeah, me too. I am so, so excited to watch his stuff. Because well, um, I, 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 I haven't seen a lot of his really early movies, so. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I've seen The Great Dictator. I don't remember if I've seen any of his other movies. Mm. Actually, maybe I'm more of a Buster Keaton guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. Is think there I've... anything that you're looking forward to in the next decade? I mean, yeah. Chaplin is Chaplin, Chaplin and yeah. and uh, I guess Buster Keaton's only really doing shorts over the next decade. I think. Um, uh. Similarly to Chaplin, I'm excited to see more Max Linder stuff. Um, yeah. he's great. And I think seeing more features is going to be cool. Watching pro- 
probably less movies for each episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, but those be movies being longer <laughs> and richer will be. I'm excited for that transition to happen. To be like, all right, we watched these four movies. Let's like get into it. And yeah, for there to be the material yeah. to do that with. Like actually being able to like talk about stuff at length and not just being like, this one was fun. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um uh our our show will be getting a bit of a mix up once um once long movies start becoming a thing though i feel like there's got to be some way that we can integrate serials and certain shorts that are relevant yeah there's Um, definitely some serials that i really want to watch and even if we don't fully get into them on on the air i want to watch them just because like there's a what like eight hour serial about vampires (laughs) is is it called the... I think it's just called the vampires and it's like a crime thing, right? Or is it actually about vampires? I was under the impression it's about vampires. I'll be oh. very disappointed if it's not now. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, I was also thinking about how uh, if we go straight from... Wh- when when we start talking about feature films, if we don't integrate shorts a little bit, it's going to be like um, like the, the technology of animated films went straight from Emile Cole to Snow White. And (laughs) so we're going to need to integrate a few shorts to to let that uh, uh, happen as well. I think so many, so many like historical greats got started in shorts. I mean, like Chaplin, Buster Keaton, a lot of, a lot of those like early movie stars uh, got started doing shorts. And so I I definitely think we're going to watch a good number of those. I would think. So, I mean, something that I am interested in in general with this pro- project is seeing the early work of famous filmmakers who we don't often see the, mm. their their start their their debuts and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- took them a while to get established, and so we don't see uh, the the piranhas of of Joe Dante and uh, <laughs> and, right. and whatnot. Um, I think for the 1910s, something that I'm kind of interested in is, you know, I think the bulk of famous silent films are from the 20s or mm-hmm. well-respected silent films. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really interested in seeing a lot of undiscovered stuff that I'm sure is lying around in the 1910s. That was certainly one of one of the exciting and like joyful things about the 1900s was seeing a bunch of stuff that i had never seen or heard of yeah and the stuff that was really good being such like a pleasant surprise being like i've never heard of this 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 is great yeah um and i think certainly like what little looking ahead i've done to the 1910s i think is gonna be some really really cool stuff Um, stay tuned folks yeah uh, it's, it's only going to get better from here, I, I think. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very excited about the 1910s. I'm I'm sort of dreading watching DW, DW Griffith movies, I guess. Um, but other than that, I'm like purely just excited. Um, before we move on to the next section, uh, one thing that I, one other thing that I wanted to talk about, a takeaway that I had from watching these movies, mm. is. I feel like um is is the is it like a matter of access a lot of this stuff 
is public domain you know it, mm-hmm. it, it, it these are these are works that are part of cinema's lineage that are important to be able to be seen and to be used i think that it's really important that stuff that's in the public domain should be able to be actually played around with and yet a lot of this stuff is hidden away in archives and behind paid services region exclusive services it's in terrible quality on youtube uploaded in 2006 and why it's always 2006 too it it is right (laughs) i think it's i think that might have been just the early year of youtube where they're just like upload everything everything Um, and when they got done taking down all the Stargate SG-1 episodes, all of the copyright-free <laughs> stuff uh, was, uh, what was what was left. Um, yep. But yeah, it, it, it has made me just really, you know, I, I, part of the idea with this project is that we're constantly moving forward. Um, but it, it's really made me want to have something to, to, to focus in on this era because I feel like this era needs so much attention. I, I mm-hmm. wish that someone could come and say, like, look, here is a central resource where all of this stuff that is part of your, uh, you know, it belongs to you. Like, people who make stuff mm. um, and people who want to enjoy cinema history, here it is, you know? And not make yeah. it into such of a project. Like, a lot of a lot of what we do in preparation for these podcasts is just hunt down like various sources and try and find ones with music and without music, different quality and everything like that. Um, it would be so nice if there were like a really centralized resource for yeah. all of this stuff. Something My... that I thought would be really cool too, is if people could like contribute their own music, different tracks for each one. That would be That'd really be... cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, my my process for watching pretty much any movie for for this podcast so far has been search the title on YouTube with the year in yeah. usually in multiple languages cuz most of them are French or Italian or Swedish or whatever. And and open literally every single upload on YouTube of yeah. which they were usually between probably 4 and 20. And watch about a second or two of each one and see which one is the best quality. Yep. And oftentimes I will get to, I will like open up 15 tabs of the same exact thing and they're all identical, terrible quality. Oh my God. And then I'll look, I'll look it up to see if I can find it on some other website. And occasionally I'll find it on like some other weird, you know, like, uh, like museum site or something or like bfi or like the library of congress or something like that yeah and then any anything british is like region locked by the bfi come on um come on come on bfi we know you listen to this podcast come on bfi let me use my vpn profits it blocks the vpn it's the whole point whoa really yeah I've been I've been itching to watch stuff on the BFI player, mm. but the VPN it says no, no, you don't live here. <laughs> Damn. Um, and yeah, it's like so I've been able to find stuff in like really excellent quality on like, uh, usually a lot of like foreign sites. Yeah. Of from whatever country of origin the films were made. Um, but it's 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 always a almost always a 
a big hassle to find anything of like watchable quality. There's stuff that is publicly available that I skipped because I was like, this is this is in such terrible quality, it's not worth watching. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. And the thing is that I mean, I think there's real degradation that can be contributing to these to this lack of quality in a lot of stuff, but a lot of the time it's just these were made DVD era, pre DVD era, VHS and, era, a lot of yeah, them. and and nobody has done anything with them yeah. since then. And, and it's... the the thing is that like these movies, if they were to be projected, probably would have tons of quality. Yeah, film itself has probably roughly equivalent to like 4K of visual oh, fidelity. Be, beyond that, like way more. Hmm. I mean, because it's it's. It's just grain, like it's, it you know, it's just a picture. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's like if you were to try to measure it in digital resolution, it's like, I don't know. Ask Chris Nolan. Um, he's probably measured it. <laughs> well, I, I, to get a little technical, I think it has something to do with the, the part of part of the the texture of film grain is how the silver halide crystals in in film are varying sizes. It's kind of just a smattering of. Uh, different sized little crystals all over the this piece of film and those are effectively pixels sort of because they each crystal can only hold one piece of color information mm-hmm. or or black and white information and so what i've heard is that it's like roughly or slightly higher than 4k and like imax film is probably closer to 8k but that's all very rough it also depends mm-hmm. on like the the speed of the film and everything like that yeah, I mean, one of the frustrating things about that is like a lot of a lot of the stuff that's in low quality is low quality. It's like digital low quality. It's not like the film yeah. print looks oh, good. Doesn't that sting? <laughs> you know, and then it's like, and then especially sometimes when it's like I'm I'm digging through and I find all these like low quality, you know, 240p YouTube uploads or worse, and then I find it in like crystal clear HD quality, and I'm like, this movie looks amazing. It's yeah. so rich and like the backdrops in it are like super detailed and cool. And like, you can see the people's faces and you know, their performances and things like that. And it's like, all of that is lost through these like blocky, you know, compressed files that are way easier to find, but are awful. Yeah. And that's the thing is that like, I think that to a lot of film releasing companies, that because this stuff is copyright free and because nobody really wants to watch it, they um, don't really opt for doing anything, uh, which is a shame. And if they do do something, it's a really full restoration, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think restorations are great, but literally if you just scanned all of this stuff and put it online, you don't need Mm -hmm. to restore it. It would be so much better. So, so much better and, and so much less work and cost. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the thing is like I I feel like Library of Congress even though the like public, uh, you know view online viewable versions of these are usually easy to find and available. They're usually not very high resolution, and I doubt that's what they were scanned at. I don't know. Uh, I've seen sort of some really like... high resolution Library of Congress uploads, um, but you know they've been i think they've been digitizing stuff for the last 15 20 years mm, and yeah um i saw 
um, this is looking looking into the sausage factory a little bit, but we recorded at we recorded 1910 earlier than this, and one of the movies for 1910 was an Alice in Wonderland movie, and uh, I I found the best quality of it on YouTube of someone who actually asked Library of Congress to scan their copy and like paid for them to do it. Mm. Um, and so they have all of the equipment, you know, they're just mm. not using mm. it, I guess, or um, they have, you we, know, they're too busy. We got to find out who has Segundo de Chamon's film catalog and pay them. Okay. So here <laughs> is scan all his movies. Here's another thing that I got from the extraordinary villa, uh, voyage is that there is someone named Anton Jimenez, Jimenez, who is the head of the Barcelona archive. And apparently he is someone who is a particularly a, a, a Segundo de Chamon archivist. So we got to hit, hit up that yeah, guy. We got to email <laughs> that guy. Um, anyway, uh, speaking of, uh, of the extraordinary voyage, which is a documentary that comes with uh, most of the recent Blu-ray releases of uh, voyage, the trip to the moon. Hmm. Um, we watched a few movies, uh, contemporary movies, that uh, are about this era. In, in particular, uh, Be Natural, the Alice Guy Blachet story, and uh, Hugo. Um, the Scorsese movie. The Hugo the Scorsese movie. Yeah. <laughs> the Hugo the Scorsese story. Um, Which is about Georges Méliès, if you haven't seen Hugo. Tangentially, Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I feel like that's like the main point of the movie is like, Melies is great. He's so cool. Yeah. He's I not will admit, the lead character, but. I was, I was, I mean, it, maybe it was the movie itself, just the movie itself, but maybe also it was just all of the thought and time and effort that we put into this. I was watching this big, like, respect fest for Melies, and I was getting, I was getting so misty, you know. I was like, Ooh, oh, he, he's, I got, he's finally getting his recognition. <laughs> I got, yeah, I got emotional watching both of these movies. Hmm. Like I had that kind of like misty, like uh, uh, <laughs> now they're old. Yeah, um, yeah true. Uh, old old woman. Uh, not to jump around too much, but. Old woman Elise Guy Blachet that you see in in footage in Be Natural. She's such a cute old lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, pretty wild to me. I guess we can talk about that one first, sure. Since we're doing it now, um, I didn't know that movie had footage or interviews with Elise Guy Blachet. Yeah, which is super cool. They were all filmed in the uh, late, early nineteen sixties, I believe. Yeah, late fifties and early sixties. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I've never like expected to see or hear anyone from this era actually talk about their life or work. Yeah, you think these people are locked into silence based on their their time in, in yeah, history? Pretty much. Um, you know, like if if I was like, it would be so cool to see even a like a old interview from the 30s of George Melies. I doubt any exist because it seemed like he was kind of didn't like to talk about it too much. Uh well, so there is 
<gasps> I, I didn't I didn't see a video, but there is audio in the extraordinary voyage of Melies speaking ah, in an interview. Damn. Um, I guess I, I don't watch know this. if there's video. Um, um but yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of really good uh interview footage with Aliski um in Be Natural. Um and yeah, it's super super interesting just to hear her actually talk about like everything about how she approached it because she was one she was one of the people who saw the lumiere brothers show Mm -hmm. she she not only saw the first public screening which is the one that we talked about the meliers went to she She, went to a previous screening months earlier that was the even more exclusive screening (laughs) yeah so she knew about movies from pretty much the moment that they existed which is pretty wild yeah and so it's like i don't know it's really really i think cool and interesting to hear about like movies didn't exist yet but she was just like this seems cool i'm in let's let's do it and then was one of the people to kind of set the standard of like what this thing even is um and then lived into the 1960s yeah like, there's there's footage of her like getting on a jet and that made me really emotional i was like oh she's on a jet now like what what a, <laughs> what a life um yeah and the movie goes over a lot of her life it's actually more i i didn't know all of this biographical information that the movie went through uh going in that, that to, to such a detail mm-hmm. um we you know we've been mostly referring to her as aliski blache uh which i guess is her name but uh once you watch the movie and <laughs> and find you kinda out want to leave off the blache yeah, part just because aliski you know <laughs> because uh was it what was uh her husband's name herbert herbert blache uh he just sucks yeah <laughs> just, no just, a, just a real shit bag it seems um who would later be given credit for a lot of her accomplishments which also is really really awful really insulting yeah um i mean she seems like a really chill person even despite the sexism that she faced um though she was just kind of correcting people like no that was my movie you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh it was also cool to hear about too like a lot of that sexism didn't even come until later in her career like it wasn't until like the start of the studio system almost that it was like became more of a even though she had the seniority i know um and even that part too like i got (laughs) i got a little bit angry i was like what like why are all these dudes are just coming in and like setting up all these businesses and things like nah there's that there's that work yeah um and it's it's just garbage um but it is kind of cool to hear about like at the start there wasn't that sort of like uh like gender gap in filmmaking like it was even though she was one of the only one (laughs) one of the only women making film at the time um i mean the only one for a good while yeah it wasn't like a weird i guess because like anyone making films at that time was a weird thing yeah i guess it was a new medium and so the uh patriarchal roles hadn't quite set in yet yeah (laughs) 
The patriarchy um, hadn't got their mitts on it yet. <laughs> uh this movie um i i mean i think i think for anyone interested in aliski's life story it's pretty it's a pretty good thing to watch i would i thought it was okay in this movie. i i really liked it i was very you really liked it yeah i did oh, I, nice. I i thought the like family history stuff and like hearing her actually talk about her life and career was was uh was yeah was made made me emotional Oh, I like that stuff. And um, and yeah, it's also just like a really cool look at like the birth of filmmaking, like from the yeah. very like kernel of of uh, this. Well, I don't know. I don't know what metaphor you want to use from the start, from the beginning times. <laughs> I I think you know, and maybe it's my bias coming in because I uh I just like have a lot of experience with these talking heads plus after effects documentaries that are looking back at a hyper specific entertainment biz thing, because that was like 50% of what I was running at South by Southwest. And so, (laughs) (laughs) and so all these directors would come in and, and you know, they'd be playing these movies. I'm just like, Oh, like I mean, I think the thing with this one is that I do care, but hmm. I, not not to get way too into it. But I feel like there are documentaries that are made for people who care about the subject already, and there are documentaries that are made for anybody. Hmm. Uh, and here is an entry point for you into this, right? Um, this one is very much made for somebody who is already invested in what they are talking about. I think hmm. it. I think it would feel at home in a uh, in a museum. Like we you know how when those mus- you can go into a museum and sit in their little screening room yeah. and watch watch the kind of more extended uh, uh, film version of what they're talking about. This 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 feels like that to me, but hmm. I, it's definitely worth it for the the context and for that interview footage. Hmm. Oof, yeah. Well, yeah, I, f- I feel like the more kind of personal angle of like tracing her family history and like talking to her relatives and stuff kind of gives it that that human touch, I guess that that keeps them feeling too sort of academic or dry yeah um i watched it with with uh my parents who are not uh i mean they're like curious people who like know a little bit about filmmaking um but they they both really enjoyed it and were very i could tell oh nice you know hooked by it like they they really they really liked it um also hugo (laughs) Yeah. Did you watch Hugo with your folks as well? Uh, I want for the first half, my mom watched it, and then my dad watched the whole thing. And they both enjoyed the parts that they saw. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, Hugo. Um, it's a uh, it's a fun one. It I, is. I, I yeah. I, dig I it. saw it when it came out, and I think I liked it more this time. Hmm. Um. Maybe it was because of the additional kind of context um but i also just think it was like i don't know i was just i i just appreciate it more i guess um i think when yeah. i first saw it i didn't even know it was about george Melies, who i knew of right back when it came out but i was like oh this is why scorsese made this like whimsical kids movie it's because <laughs> it's just about silent movies uh yeah it's very steampunk too um which is this a a Melies thing 
Yeah, yes. Um, there's so many sounds of, like, ticking, like, ticking gears in this movie. <laughs> well, yeah, I, it's funny because it, it is very steampunky and, like, there's a lot, there's tons of gears and rivets and smoke and things. Um, and it made me think about that, like, that whole kind of aesthetic, I guess, probably does owe s- s- something to George Melies. Yeah, I think you're right about um, that. I mean, that is his, like, a big part of his, the aesthetic of his films, especially his more kind of sci-fi-ish uh, ones. Yeah. Of, like, having big, big silly gears and, like, things with rivets and, and steam and things. Um, and so it felt, it did feel kind of, that was certainly something that I think I, I picked up on more on this watch. It, at the time, I think it reminded me more of, of, someone more recent like um uh jean-pierre junet who mm-hmm. is uh he, he directed amelie and um delicatessen and has you know is known for i guess sort of like whimsical french films yeah um, in that documentary by the way uh the extraordinary voyage uh jean-pierre jean-pierre junet uh compares meliers to james cameron um because of how he is an artist and a kind of technical inventor at the same time. Yeah, uh, that is a and, good comparison. And because the documentary is from 2011, they're like, he's just like Avatar. Avatar, <laughs> go see Avatar. Um, <laughs> one day, James Cameron will come out with eight more of them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, I think having a sort of stronger, uh idea of like the i guess the influences and like the history behind a lot of the stuff in hugo made me probably appreciate that stuff more yeah but then also i don't know i think at the time maybe i was i was younger and i was just more like it's a kids movie man and now i'm just like mm-hmm. no this is fun i want to see like borat try to <laughs> like catch a kid <laughs> um all of the all of the like side stories and stuff i really I really liked art and feel very, feel very, uh, inspired by Jean-Pierre Junet, like feel very Amelie-esque. Yeah, I could, I think that checks out that, um, it's very, it's very charming. Yeah. Um, it is, it is very funny that this movie is set in Paris. Every single character in it is French and yet every single character also has a strong English accent. Like... (laughs) Every it's character the, in it is French. They're all wearing berets, and they're like, "Oh, hello, dude. What's yeah. going on over here?" Including, including the Americans putting on a British um, accent. I mean, I think that's just like it, it's mostly. Whole, I mean, it's it's mostly European. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, most of them have sort of, uh, I guess, like RP received pronunciation accents, like kind of classical English speech. But then um, the uncle played by ray winstone was that ray winstone that is ray winstone who has a very strong cockney accent and just shows up and it's like oh you boy i'm taking you to live in the train station and it's like (laughs) it's france (laughs) (laughs) well it's just across the english channel meliers did dig a tunnel across Uh... across there um i didn't see uh hugo when it came out uh but i remember people after it coming out calling it like one of the best 
possible uses of 3D in a movie. It's a it's a great 3D movie, and that's how it should be seen. And so I held off for the longest time on watching it mm. because um, I wanted to see it in 3D. And we played it at my theater a couple times. The first time, we played it for like a week straight, but I just never made a chance to see it. Uh, and it was in 3D. And then uh, we played it a second time, like a year or two later, and I finally was able to catch a screening of Hugo in 3D. Um, and yeah, it's very good 3D. I think it's it's like tasteful 3D, you know? Yeah. And it uses a lot of the... It's not like super gimmicky, but it, it has a lot of depth in the uh, steamwork tunnels, or ste- mm. steampunk tunnels and gears and uh, spires and whatnot that it, yeah, it adds a... It adds a fun... I mean, I think it, it the, the using the 3D almost feels like a Melies gimmick, you know. It does. It's it's, yeah. it's this technical gimmick that is that was new-ish at that time of the like digital 3D, and uh, and it it, it it adds it's like a sense of whimsy on top of the movie. I think that it it maybe feels a little would feel a little less whimsical in 2D, or at least the 3D kind of amplifies it, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm realizing now that I actually have not seen the movie in 2D because I remember, you know, I, I made such a trouble to see it in 3D and then I was like, okay, like I'm going to, I'm ready. I'm going to, you know, rent this movie or whatever and, and watch it on my computer. And then I said, oh, wait, oh, wait, um, <laughs> I don't have a 3D TV, but I do have a VR headset. And so I went on, uh, there's a website where you can, uh, rent movies in a virtual reality theater uh, th- and watch them in 3D on your VR headset. And so <laughs> I was just able to just sit on my desktop chair and watch uh, Hugo in 3D while having a big, heavy thing on my face. <laughs> was so there was, was there like VR seats around you? And yeah, yeah, you can you can change like the the environment. I'm, that I'm it's so in. jealous, but. Honestly, it felt like it felt really nice to just like be in a theater seat again, you know. <laughs> what would what would Meliers think of the future of you <laughs> sitting at home and putting on a big heavy thing on your face? I'm, I'm watching probably a 3D film about him. Wow. Yeah. Something to think about. Watching Hugo did make me for once appreciate my facial hair. Good, good. And if you're watching the YouTube version, you can appreciate his facial hair too. <laughs> you gotta, um, you gotta wax that thing, man. I, I, it would be so good. It would, look at that. That's amazing. I'm sorry for all the podcast listeners. Go to our YouTube channel, which is linked in the description, and uh, <laughs> subscribe to our Patreon so that we can buy Glenn some mustache wax. <laughs> That's that's our first goal of our non-existent yeah. Patreon. Um, well, yeah. So it was it was. I thought we we thought we'd take a little bit of a fun opportunity to watch some movies reflecting on this time that we had yeah. just covered. Um, I did think and... it was kind of one last thought about both of these is I thought it was kind of interesting to see how, um, like the parallels between both stories of George Méliès and Deliski. Hmm. Um, Hugo takes a lot of, uh, shortcuts, I guess, or, or sort of creative liberties with, with some of Melies' life. Yeah, sidebar, but like, oh my God, 
all that this podcast has given me is just being able to like cinema sins that Hugo thing. I was like, excuse me. Um, the arrival of the train was in 1896, not 1895. And it wasn't at the original Lumiere screening and people didn't think that it was real. And Georges Méliès didn't wander into a screening in a, in a carnival. He went to one that was a yeah. ticketed screening in a hotel lobby. <laughs> and he wasn't married to his, uh, his wife. Yeah. Um but that don't matter cuz it's a movie and Scorsese was like it don't matter. Yeah. It works better if I change stuff. Um <laughs> but how yeah, both of them I mean sort of got inspired by the Lumiere screening. And so both of them kind of like were there from the start, like are very yeah. much like part of the first wave of film directors and people who are I guess you would consider directors now like they weren't just sort of like i have a camera and i'm gonna go film some waves they were like no no no, no. like i got i have ideas right yeah um they saw the magic in it yeah yeah they they both i think make movies that uh take advantage of films kind of inherent um magicality mm-hmm. of just sort of like n- you know neither of them wanted to make like melodramas or actualities they were like no no no." like melias is like no no no. space fairies goblins all that yeah and aliski is like you know sticky people yeah glue uh uh mattress chases you know they both wanted Um, to make movies about mattresses yeah the same year uh neither movie gets into that um (laughs) but yeah i don't know like aliski is one of the very few filmmakers from this first you know 15 years of films that i feel like really tried to like make movies with social commentary yeah there were a few others but like hers have a very strong sense of like commenting on like social norms and like gender roles and things in a way that not many other people were doing um and how they both kind of had this like peak of of fame and fortune where they like started their own companies and and like became really uh i don't know how wealthy they became but like you know had their sort of peak of success and then yeah. it very quickly kind of tapered off around the same time i guess melies a little bit earlier um right but yeah both of them like by world war one were kind of like not making movies anymore um and then kind of lived in obscurity for a while and then sort of had a resurgence um Melies sort of ended his career earlier and then but then had a, a a pretty short period of like not people not knowing much about him mm-hmm. um between I don't know, like 1913 and the mid 20s when like his films were discovered and they had the big the big gala which is in in Hugo um whereas it seems like Elise Guy didn't really get a lot of recognition until like the 6th like towards the end of her life Um, yeah that's true uh which is kind of sad but i'm i'm both of them had that thing of like later in life kind of getting that recognition and knowing that their work was appreciated and like how important it was kind of that is nice um so yeah they i think they they made good they made for a good double feature they made for good kind of companion pieces to each other I will say too about that um that Melies uh revival screening 
in Hugo, and this isn't this isn't a cinema sins gripe. This is just kind of an interesting mm-hmm. historical thing. Is that in Hugo they talk about how they've rediscovered eighty of his movies, um, but that was more like how many movies of his had been discovered at the time of the movie Hugo coming out. Mm. Um, yeah, at in at that charity benefit in nineteen twenty nine, there were only eight that they were able to find. Mm. Um, they were. Whimsical Illusions, The Spider and the Butterfly, The Wandering Jew, The Diabolic Tenant, uh, Tenant, God, mm. uh, Baron Munchausen's Dream, uh, The Merry Frolics of Satan, Trip to the Moon, and The Conquest of the Pole. A- almost entirely mm. movies from his last couple of years that still survived. Yeah. Um, and the show was so short that it had to be padded out with an American feature film, uh, to, to, which is kind of a insulting i think yeah um did, did, did it say which one it, they did not no oh. i i i took a picture of the playbill they showed it in that documentary um and that's how i just figured out which of these eight movies they were playing um it might have mentioned the american movie in yeah. french um, um that's so funny it's like and also now we're just gonna show this other movie <laughs> yeah right like so weird <laughs> um and now I think it's about time that we talk about our top 10 of the 19 aughts. Uh, we both we both made a couple lists. Um, I kind of definitely went for the ones that had the most impact on me. I don't know about like mm. quality versus their time or whatever, but yeah, I mean, I, I tried to be pretty subjective about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I didn't get that in the weeds about like what order they're in. Oh, okay. Um, I did. <laughs> other than the first, like the first couple, I, I tried okay. to put you know the the best of the best at, at the top. Yeah. Um, we start start with our number tens, I guess, and work our okay. way up to the number one. Sure. Uh, my number ten was "The Life and Passion of Jesus Christ" by Ferdinand Zecca mm. and Lucien Nonguet. Non non gue. Non joué. Non joué. I don't know. Non gui. Um, you should never defer to me, even though I did take three semesters of French, because I'm still wrong. I'm, I'm still wrong most of the time. <laughs> um this was a movie that was produced between nineteen oh three and nineteen oh five by for, by those two directors who are French and I can't say their names. Um and I just remember being just so impressed with this movie of uh, its its scale, which was, I mean, this was the longest movie that we'd seen by far at the yeah. point that we watched it. Um, and its competency, the way that it used colors and told kind of very human stories about a kind of superhuman dude. Um, it was yeah. the original Avengers movie. Oh, my God. Uh, what was your number 10? <laughs> My number 10 was Mary Jane's Mishap Ooh, by yeah. George Albert Smith. That's a fun um, one. And it's it's just like a wacky comedy about a woman who blows herself up. <laughs> yeah. Um I had that on my short list definitely. And but it's 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 almost shockingly well made for the time. Yeah. Um it I forget what year it is. I didn't write it down, um, but it was pretty early on. I I would say, um, and it's got close ups. It's got uh, like competent editing. 
Um, it's it's funny. Like the humor of it holds up for the most part. Yeah. Um, it's got good performances. It's got good like effects stuff. Um, and it's just very goofy and silly, which I I of course love. <laughs> yeah, I wish that I was able to put have more comedy representation on my list, but um, I don't know. I I was. I love the I, I love the fantastical and which mm. we'll be seeing uh, shortly. Yeah, my number nine was the hen that laid the golden eggs, mm. uh, which was by Gaston Vell, I think in nineteen oh five, and it was a, a Melies alike in the uh, fairy stylings, um, but it had just some wonderful. Uh, some wonderful colors, some wonderful like illustrations and some kind of new effects that we hadn't seen. Um, and it's just like a really, really good time. It told its story visually super well too. And had a lot of like really fun, creepy stuff in it. (laughs) It did. Yeah. (laughs) Um, my, uh, my number nine is on the barricade Mm. by Elise key. Mm -hmm. Um, which is one of her more, uh one of her more serious movies i guess yeah like there's not really a lot of comedy in it and a lot of her other movies even if they're about more serious things kind of have a a a slight humorousness to them um and this is like a intense war movie yeah um and i think just that too of it like the the sort of seriousness and intensity of it kind of took me by surprise because i wasn't really expecting that from going through the rest of her movies from that year. Um, it's got some really good staging in it. There's the scene of the the kid going out into the streets to get water, and he sees like a, a an armed battle happening ahead of him, but it's around a corner, and we're only seeing like people retreating around that corner, and sort of as he approaches it, like more and more people are coming around the corner. We don't actually really see what's going on, we, but we can get the idea that there's like a battle happening kind of off screen um that that shot really impressed me yeah it's like um yeah it's it's so so well done i loved it a lot um it's it's coming up soon on my list (laughs) (laughs) uh my number eight you're gonna hate me for this (laughs) my number eight is the teddy bear (laughs) (laughs) I was going through the list of all the movies you watched, and I was like, Chris is going to put that on this list. <laughs> this movie is absolutely psychotic, and Glenn Glenn hated it. I I, uh, I actively dislike this movie. <laughs> but I just love how bananas and, and cruel it is, seemingly for no reason. <laughs> it is. It is. It is an incredibly mean-spirited movie. <laughs> Uh, it's a retelling of uh, it's a mashup of Goldilocks and the Three Bears and the origin story of the idea of a teddy bear, which was Teddy Roosevelt going hunting for bears and sparing a, a bear cub after and killing its mother. After killing its mother, so so this movie that part of the story I feel like gets left out a lot. It's like it oh, does, Teddy Roosevelt yeah. didn't murder a bear. Good for yeah, him. Famous, famous environmentalist Teddy Roosevelt slaughtered two bears. Yeah. Um, which you see in this, you know, the, the, the mama bear and the papa bear from Goldilocks uh, get 
gunned down by a former president. Um, and how can that not? How can that not be in my top ten? <laughs> fair, fair. Just the the sheer audacity of that of that film. Yeah, is, yeah. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, my number eight. My number eight is. Um, you're gonna hate me for this one because I'm cheating and I chose two because they're very similar. Um, and it's a tie between the drunken mattress and the race for the sausage. I would even mm-hmm. maybe throw in the uh, the pumpkin race in there too. Is also very similar to these. Um, and they're they're very simplistic. Just like a weird thing happens and then a chase. Yeah. Um, and the chase sort of goes through different locations and sort of a weird thing happens at each of the different locations. Um, and it's just really weird and delightful and strange. <laughs> um, Drunken Mattress and Race for the Sausage were both directed by Elise Guy. I forget who did the pumpkin race. Um, I didn't write the pumpkin race down, so that one doesn't really count. Um, but yeah, like Drunken Mattress is just like there is a lot of really well shot and like well staged stuff in that. There's mm-hmm. the the oh, shot yeah. of the shot of the the um the woman who's working on the mattress in the middle of a field, and you see the the drunkard like slowly sort of wandering his way through the field in the background, closer and closer, as he's just sort of like staggering around, um, and you just know that he's going to get inside that mattress sooner or later. <laughs> and then the yeah, race for the sausage has one of the one of the most impressive stunts of any of the movies that we've watched so far, which is a, a baby carriage gets run over by a train. <laughs> There's no baby in it. There's no baby in it. It's one of those gags where you think the baby carriage has a baby in it and then it doesn't after like mm. something hits it. This might be the first time that's ever been in a movie. Yeah. Uh, all the way up until the famous baby carriage scenes of, of later silent films. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Baby carriages are a weird thing in silent movies, aren't they? I guess so. I mean, people just, I don't know. A pram is a very interesting object, just visually. Mm. Um, yeah. Kind of funky looking. Um, my number seven is A Voyage to Jupiter. Mm. Um, very which good. Which is such a, like, I mean, we talked about this last week, but it's it's such a wonderfully storybooky and and unique take on what Melies is going for in Trip to the Moon. It feels very uniquely Segundo de Chamon and um it's just it just feels it's like just a, such a nice time to watch. Mm. By the way, also I I I apologize for keep referencing back to this documentary that you haven't seen yet, <laughs> but they have they talk about Melies's rip-offs in the documentary mm-hmm. and they they show some stuff from Voyage to Jupiter that is in HD, and and I'm just where do I find this? Where do I get it? Yeah, I need it. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing. Is like I'm sure all I'm sure it exists. Is the thing. It's just not accessible. Um, yeah that that does remind me to go off on a a, a very short tangent. Hopefully, um, uh, Voyage to Jupiter as well as Trip to the Moon. Um, that whole genre of like space movies from this decade um really remind me of music videos probably because music videos have spent 
the entirety of their existence uh pulling from silent film and mm. like Melier's movies specifically um and it reminded me of a, a cool part of that uh Elise Ski documentary where they talk about her early early sound films of which she was kind of a pioneer um and uh a lot of them were or i think almost all of them were music or yeah. or singing or performance of music of some variety phonosense um and in the documentary they compare that to i think someone pretty much just says that it's like she invented music videos <laughs> which is not entirely untrue um yeah like it sounds kind of hyperbolic but i'm like if if not her then who you know i mean we're used to music videos for music from the 80s on but yeah uh or 70s this was the popular... I, think, maybe? I don't know sure i don't know when the like yeah when like the typical like starting point for music videos is thought of but um this was definitely the popular music of the day so mm-hmm. it seems to qualify as a music yeah, video it's it even it was even shot uh, they were even shot uh to playback uh, right. to playback of a of a external lip sync to pre-recorded yeah. music yeah um my number 7 was the spring fairy directed by someone probably Segundo Duchamon yeah who definitely shot it he might have only shot it or only done the color uh stenciling and it may have been directed by someone else we don't know either way it was a good film i really yeah. like it i think it's it's uh it tells a pretty short but like simplistic story well um it looks amazing. It's like one of the one of the better looking movies, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's just and it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, a couple that that don't have any children but want one help an old woman uh, let her in from the snow, who turns out to be a spring fairy who summons a bunch of flowers and trees and things, and then grows a baby for them um and which it has is a very elise gi move of right. pulling a baby out of plants which is why she is some sometimes credited as directing this i don't really know if she did because i think she I was think so. i think she was working at gaumont at the time and this is a pate film yeah um regardless uh i like that one a lot the next movie that i'm talking about which is my number six is also just called spring Mm. Um, and I know that I put Voice Jupiter ahead of Spring literally last week, but <laughs> sue me. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that this movie is so beautiful, and I just felt so so nice watching it. It's um, it's very impressionistic, which is something that we don't. I mean, we see we see impressionistic touches on on a visual in a visual sense in a lot of movies but uh seeing something this kind of almost ballet like in its impressionism of just the entire framing of the story the way that it used the vignettes to really give it this um this wonderful sort of frame to all the action that was happening i felt like it felt like completely unstuck from its era um and and just very beautiful i liked it mm. um it's funny i think if i just watched that uh without 
hearing your thoughts on it, I would have been like, ah, it was fine, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I think actually hearing you talk about you told me about it before I watched it. Um, I think like hearing your appreciation for it made me enjoy it more. Hmm. I was able to like appreciate it more uh, fully because because you had already been like, it's it's really good. <laughs> um, it's a pretty unassuming movie in a lot of other ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, my what number we on? Number six. Yeah, is the Great Train Robbery, which is um one of like the famous ones. Yeah. Um. So I don't know why I'm. It like, deserves it though. It it is good. Like, it's very good. It's it's Edward S. Porter's best movie by about a hundred miles. Um, <laughs> arguably his only good movie. Right. Um, and it's it's uh we did read up on it. I I I now kind of have a, a semi conspiracy theory that. Not that he didn't direct it, but that a lot of the reason why it's good is because he worked with the lead actor on a lot of the the storytelling of it and a lot of the staging of it. And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. why it stands, maybe, that's why it stands so, like, head and shoulders above everything else he's ever made. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's it has its place in history for good reason, I think. Like, yeah. it's, it's very impressive for the time it was made. Um... I think it's it holds up pretty well. It's still pretty entertaining. Um, and then you see a guy shooting a gun at the screen at the either the beginning or the end, depending on <laughs> where you saw it in the olden times. But usually the end when you watch it now, they usually yeah. put it on at the end. Super iconic, definitely. Yeah. Um, my number five is Kingdom of the Fairies, mm. uh, which is a uh wonderful Melies fairy that is definitely more more in the it's more in the fantasy realm than the sci-fi realm like a trip to the moon mm-hmm. um but it is it's such a good time it's so it's so, such a beautiful movie um it's it's a really good adventure and there's just a lot of like weirdness in it uh that just feels very him like lobster cars um <laughs> Um, yeah, I like, it's like you were talking about in the 1903 episode, it is sometimes the kind of stealth Melies favorite. Um, a lot of people, it's the uh, contrarians, uh, favorite Melies film. Yeah. And I think they have a good reason to like it. Um, cause it is, it's just a great time. It's a really great adventure yeah. story. Um, I'll hold off on talking about it more because it's also on my list. Um, but my number five, number six, where are we on? I forget so quickly. Number five is History of a Crime by Ferdinand Seca. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, it's just really good. I think of of all of Ferdinand Seca's kind of um, like tragic crime movies, um, this one I think is one of the first ones and one of the best. Yeah. Um, it I'm has, kind of regretting not putting it on my list now. <laughs> it has, I don't know how much we fact check it, but I think it has the first like depiction of a flashback or like film depiction mm-hmm. of a memory. Sure. Um, At the very least, it does it in a very interesting way visually. Yeah. Um, yeah, with double exposure and like not really split screen, but like having a wall 
kind of change into a guy's memory. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, it feels very like artfully made. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good one. Um, my number four is the great train robbery, which we just talked about. <laughs> uh, I think that it's, it, it's really fun. It's astoundingly good for, I, I mean, I think when we're ta- when we're talking about our, our movies right now, we're kind of saying with regret that, that a DW Griffith movie or, or, we're, you know, we're saying, yeah, well it's good. It's a DW Griffith movie and it's good. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Um, I guess I he felt made the same a good way. one. I felt the same way about great train robbery. Not because, uh, <laughs> not because Edwin S. Porter is hideously racist, um, but because it's just like we wanted him to just be this guy that we hate on the whole time because he's yeah. so bad. Oh yeah, just yeah, like all of the rest of his movies are just boring and overly long and not yeah. not well made. Um, but this this one's this one. really fun. It's yeah. really really fun. Um, I think that you could sit anyone down in front of this movie and they'd have a good time. It's it's tense yeah. and it's uh, and it's just a good romp. It was like one of the two movies from this time period that I had seen before this. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, my number four is The Magic Sword, directed by Walter Arbuth. Yeah. Um, super fun. Uh, and and kind of a kind of a hidden gem, I guess. I had never heard of it, and I don't think I was even gonna watch it until you were like, "You got to watch this one." <laughs> um, and it's. It feels very kind of Melies inspired. Um, and it's certainly not as kind of well polished as most of his movies were. But it's just like like the best Melies movie movies, there's just this sense of like anything can happen. Every couple seconds, like a new weird thing appears on screen and you're like, wait, what? Like you almost have to kind of reframe your idea of what the movie even is a little yeah. bit. Of like, wait it's a so minute, ambitious. whoa, yeah. this is going places I didn't expect it to go. <laughs> um, the, the, I think that is best exemplified by the appearance of a giant who is uh, uh, an actor that they've shot closer up, but then really well integrated into the same shot as the other actors. So he appears to just like climb over a wall. And it was just this thing of, I didn't expect the giant to climb over a wall in the middle of this movie. And it was just uh, an utter delight when that happened. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, my number three is On the Barricade. Mm. Um, it's, it's very high up on the list, but honest, I was I was just wowed by this movie. I think that the tone and the, 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 um, the seriousness and the drama, the confidence of it, fantastic um i felt like it was super super effective as a movie and um i'm used to more silly or neutral things from elise Guy. um and then she just knocks it out of the park with this like really intense war movie yeah and bringing um, the scale down to like a kid's size too really really makes it pack a punch yeah, yeah. the The fact that it is like you're seeing it through the eyes of a kid makes yeah makes everything just feel so much kind of more, I don't know, just more dramatic and like more intense. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
super good. Uh, my number three is Legend of a Ghost. Uh, what what a picture. What well, I mean, picture. like, what can I even say about this one? It's it's um, it's definitely it's one that I had never heard of, had never heard any reference to. It's another Segundo de Shimon fantasy movie, but it is it is just completely wild and insane and fantastical. I mean, it's it's the movie where there's a title card that says, uh, what is it? Satan assembles his army. Yeah. <laughs> and the lead character is given a quest by a ghost to go uh, vanquish, fight and vanquish Satan and steal Ugh. his, his uh, like, uh, eternal flame from hell so that you can get a black pearl from the Mer kingdom. And then she parties with mermaids for like, all of act two and then the devil comes back and gets his revenge and there's car chase like weird chariot car chases oh this movie is so cool this yeah. is my number two so i mean i guess we can just keep talking about it <laughs> this, is, this, is my no- this, this is my number two <laughs> um, it's so good it's it's i cannot believe how wild this movie is it's one of the one of the few movies that we watched from the podcast that i have recommended to multiple people Yes. Just outside of it, of just like you should watch this. Like, here's the YouTube link. Yep. It's, yeah. It's same. wild. Check. It I out. think I think anyone can appreciate this because it is the raddest ancient movie that you've ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> and it is, as far as we can tell, not available in HD anywhere, which is such garbage because it's a gorgeous <sighs> looking. It's a crazy visual feast. Yeah. Um, and it's really frustrating not be able to watch it in HD. Great outdoor outdoor shooting, great colors, yeah, super cool, like within cave, just like satanic, yeah, uh, r- ritual parties and everything. One of the only movies to have really dramatic lighting in it. Like mm-hmm. most of these movies are just like shot in it like a greenhouse during the day, so that everything's lit up. And this movie is shot in a cave underground using flares and lamp and like fire and things. <laughs> Uh, I I would I said it then I'll say it again I would die if somebody uh, made a modern day remake of Legend of a Ghost anybody can so yeah. go ahead and do that yeah. if you're listening because this is the coolest movie this is you know though it's not at the top of my list it is the coolest movie I've seen in a long time and and in the series so far yeah um so rad it is it is uh, a a heavy metal album cover come to life before <laughs> and either of those things existed. Um, that, that's very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, my number two is Kingdom of the Fairies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a gorgeous, wonderfully imaginative, whimsical, great thing this is. Uh, I think like the best, like a lot of the best fantasy movies from this time period it it is that thing like every couple seconds is a new thing and it's a new thing that i didn't expect didn't expect to happen and didn't even necessarily always expect was like possible yeah in some cases um and it's just like there's miniatures in it there's there's so much like effects work that is really well done um and it's it's all done in, in such a sort of heightened, fantastical way that it, it never 
I think you use the word storybook for one of the other mm-hmm. movies. For Voice of Jupiter, yeah. Um, and that that's yeah, that's very much the vibe of like it feels like a storybook come to life in the best possible way. Also, there's a big octopus in it. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, this and a bunch of other Melies films are available on a Blu-ray. Uh, Melies Fairy Tales in Color. Um, and I think are on Alley. Canopy also in pretty high quality. Uh, yeah, Maybe? I'm not. I'm not sure if that if the stuff from that Blu-ray is available on Canopy. Um, oh, okay. I know that this is available as part of the Melies box set that was released like 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's in, in in more standard definition, but the the HD version is gorgeous. Yeah, gorgeous. It, it definitely like for all the contrarians who say it's it's the best Meliès movie. Like, I don't one hundred percent agree. Kind of giving away my number one, but um, yeah, Kingdom of the Fairies for for anyone who says that it's their favorite Meliès film, I don't disparage that. Like, it's 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 held up for for good reason. Yeah. Um, and we can guess at what the number one is. You want to say our number ones on the count of three? Sure. <laughs> one, two, three. A Uncle Josh the in the Spooky Hotel. Oh, you nailed the joke. I thought <laughs> we were just going to say a trip to the moon at the same time. <laughs> no, yeah, my number one is trip to the moon also, of course. Because of course. it is, it's the most boring answer. But that's because it's the correct answer. It's clearly the best. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like I was just saying, Kingdom of the Fairies comes very close for me. I think, like, I Mm -hmm. love Kingdom of the Fairies. I think it's incredible. I think it's super gorgeous, super impressive. But, like, Trip to the Moon is just, like, uh, like they say in Hugo, a masterpiece. It's what dreams are made of. It's, uh, you all should go and watch A Trip to the Moon weirdly i think because lobster films is is like really aggressive about their copyright it's kind of hard to find a really nice version online you can see one on canopy uh especially the color version um you can Mm. find a pretty good black and white on youtube uh but seek out this movie because it holds up so well it gives you such a sense of wonder and awe and adventure and uh the the sets are beautiful and especially when you look at it in context of everything leading up to it it's such a step ahead Mm -hmm. in every way oh yeah um yeah i mean it's 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 really uh impress i think it is impressive to look at even now just the amount of work that went into it almost like with with all of the like the painted backdrops and things just look amazing um and and yeah just the the sense of like almost like limitless possibility of it too of just sort of like we can do anything with this like we're gonna you know set a movie on the moon and have moon fights with moon men um and that too is like a lot of these movies are fun and like technically impressive and uh you know whatever else sort of in con- like trip to the moon is just a, a fun romp yeah um it's it's it moves very quickly it's fast paced um you know like i've been saying over and over again like there's a new thing every couple seconds that's really cool there are fights with moon men <laughs> um yeah. yeah there's 
there's fights with moon men there's moon men doing backflips uh doing crab walks uh there's uh, a big old scene where the they fall down from the moon as if it were just floating in the sky mm-hmm. and fall literally straight down into the water yeah um and it is also like even you can tell even at the time it was like it made a big impact because people immediately started doing unauthorized remakes of it yeah like right away like right away they were just like everyone just do moon movies now <laughs> and none of them are anywhere near as good uh the jupiter one is probably the, the next best like space movie maybe because it it feels so different yeah um but yeah it's yeah it's it's the best movie of the 1900s pretty much i think that's it's pretty agreed upon now we've done the work to uh make sure now we've yeah. done the work to know for sure exactly that this is the best movie of the 1900s yeah we people told us it was the best and we had to waste dozens of hours to make <laughs> sure <laughs> correct we that, couldn't have just listened to them yeah that that was our uh that was our entire inspiration for doing this <laughs> was we said we don't believe you um yeah what a what a decade what a decade lots to look forward to in the next one yeah well i guess that'll about wrap it up i guess so um if you are interested in following us online we have a spiffy instagram which i'm trying to post fun uh fun little photographs that i find in my research on the instagram story and then we'll tell you whenever a new episode comes out uh which is today because you're listening to one hey um and we know that you listen on the first day gotta get those Got to get those dollars in, those those advertising dollars. Um, Wait a minute, uh, you're getting, you're getting advertising dollars from this? We'll talk about it later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks thanks so much for for listening. Um, you know, I don't know if anybody actually really is listening, but if you are, thank you. Um, <laughs> we we appreciate it. We appreciate it. Um, if you exist yeah um and we hope you continue to journey along with us into uh film uh itself i don't know if that makes any sense thank you um, jeff goldblum hmm, hmm. yes can you uh, our uh journey into mm, film itself <laughs> mm, fascinating oh time to cut this off so uh <laughs> Of course, you can follow us on Instagram. I think that's probably where I'll post the most. But we've got a Twitter, and uh, we have a YouTube, which uh, has all video versions where you can watch along with us. There's a playlist and everything that shows you all the movies you need to watch to prepare for the episode. And uh, that's about it, I think. I love that. One, we're assuming that anyone's listening to this, and also we're assuming that they're preparing for it. Right. Hey, maybe someone is. That would be great. We love you if if you are. But 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 anyway, um, uh, yes, that'll do it. See you next year. Goodbye, nineteen ten. Ahoy. See you later, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs>